0: So this afternoon we will return to settling the body, speech, and the mind in a natural state, coming to it for the first time. To badly paraphrase T. S. Eliot. If you can master the settling body, speech, and mind at natural state, then Shamit is easy but it should be no problem. Because to really settle your body in its natural state suggests an extraordinary degree of balance, very fine-tuned, even if you're in the supine position, still real balance. But then all the more so, that, that central one. Recall that it really does mean settling the speech. It's settling body, speech, and mind in the natural state. What's the metaphor? Anybody remember the metaphor for settling the speech in its natural state? What is it, James? Yeah, it's an effortless silence. An effortless silence like that of a lute on which the strings have been cut. And we know how easy that is verbally, so we don't even need to talk about it quite literally. But in terms of that internal commentary, the rumination, the chit-chat, the stray conversations. We all know that we can clamp down and get the mind to be quiet for a while, but that's not it. To so relax, so in such a fine-tuned way, to relax, to release, to return, so that there's zero tolerance. Zero tolerance. It doesn't mean you're uptight. Doesn't mean, certainly It doesn't mean you're angry or upset. It just means that you are so precise that even the quietest murmuring of chit-chat in the mind catches your attention. And you relax, you release, and you return. You'd be like if you were a chef at a very fine restaurant and you're preparing a gourmet salad, really in every aspect of it, it's just to perfection. And as you're preparing it, a fly drops into your salad. You don't think, well, what's one fly, more or less? It's just a fly. They probably won't notice. <laughs> just a fly. You can just pick it out, you know, just pick it out. They won't mind. Or one cockroach, just a baby. It's a baby cockroach. What's what's the big deal? You know? Live and let live, right? Maybe it has a family, so a few cockroaches. I mean I know this is a five star restaurant, but you know, cockroaches live and let live, you know? No, I don't think so. And so when it's the cockroaches of your mind and you're dishing up the settling the mind is natural state, not even one cockroach. Not even one. And it's only then that you see what it's really like to settle the speech in its natural state, how deliciously silent, clear, luminous, transparent it is. And then we need a method. We can't just say, do it, and try harder, and I'll try, and so forth. That doesn't work. It is with that breath. And it's with every single out-breath, not missing missing a beat, not missing a cycle. After all, we do have a limited number of breaths. It's quite, quite a big deal in very subtle Buddhist physiology that your karma that propels you into this lifetime becomes connected with a certain number of breaths. And when your breath's finished, then you're finished. You can always exit earlier. You can be silly and ride a motorcycle crazily and then have an accident and die. So dying is easy. But if you're going to live to the full extent of your karmic propulsion, that will mean breathing every breath that was allotted to you. How many breaths do you want to waste? As they say, don't waste your breath. Don't waste one. They're too precious. Money you can lose. Money you can lose. You can make a bad investment. It happens. I've done it. You lose all your money, and then you get more. Maybe. At least they get some more. Where you, where you, what bank account are you going to go to to get more breaths, to pay back for all the way, and so you just waste it? Right? No such bank account. So that middle one of settling this internal speech, the speech of the mind in its natural state of effortless silence by this very subtle, and I think now that you've been here for four and a half weeks, a lot of you have some intimation of how subtle this is to really settle the respiration its natural rhythm. right? And you cannot do it. You won't do it. It's impossible. As long as the mind is still going cha 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 Rumination. It won't do it. It will just always be interrupting the flow. It will not be able to do it. So it's chicken and the egg. The two are reciprocal. You won't be able to really let that breath go utterly effortlessly without any intervention, without any perturbation by rumination. You won't be able to do that unless the mind really calms down. Not even one cockroach. But you won't be able to really get the mind to settle down so that it's just luminous, it's still, it's effortless, it's flow, it's quiet, it's clear, it's still, unless your breathing is flowing in its natural rhythm. Subtler and subtler and subtler, that damped sine wave that just gets really silky and flatter and flatter and flatter. The two go together the breath, the prana, and rumination. Go very much together. So that's settling the speech in its natural rhythm. Now we're working at the graduate level. Right? So when I go off in, oh, to Norway, to Denmark, maybe some other places, I'll be speaking with businessmen, business people. I'm going to be primarily teaching them how to settle body, speech, and mind in natural state. That's beginner level. Now you've been here for four and a half weeks. Now we have to go to advanced level. Now let's get real, really fine tune it, right? Fine tune it. And we haven't even gotten to settling the mind in its natural state—not yet, as a shamatha project, a shamatha practice, which you know well—but just this preliminary settling, of settling the mind in its natural state. So, from moment to moment to moment, from instant to instant, you're just releasing everything that comes up all your attachment to this life. Not letting even one cockroach in. All your thoughts, your concerns, hopes and fears about the past, about the future. It's just like taking a cleaver and say, not now. It isn't now. It's then, in the past, which has vanished. It's then in the future, which is complete fantasy because we don't know what the future is. We take that cleaver and just shave off All the encrustations, our attachments, our hopes and fears, our compulsive conceptual mind, shave that off and see what's left. And what's left is awareness right in the instant of the present moment without grasping, which is by nature still. You don't have to stabilize it. You can't possibly stabilize it. But what you can do is release that which destabilizes it, right? And then what does it do? It rests in its own place. it holds its own ground, not there's holding anything to hold on to. its just that's where it rests when it's not being held or grabbed by anything else. So there is that relaxation, that ease of the mind, and then the stillness of awareness. And you're resting in that stillness. you don't look anywhere else for vividness, for clarity, because now once again, just as you have released all. That sets your awareness in compulsive motion. And then what's left is a stillness. Likewise, as you now, in a very fine and subtle way, release all the rumination, release the cognitive fusion with dullness, but with becoming spaced out and so forth, you release all of that. What's left is just the natural clarity, luminosity, brightness of your awareness just rest there. And how we'll venture into it this afternoon. will be as Padmasambhava teaches it in natural liberation, right at the beginning of awareness of awareness, shamatha without a sign. And then that is in this utter looseness, devoid of grasping, as much as possible with no past, no future, no movement, natural clarity. Then release the effort of extending or directing your attention to anything. It's as if the whistle is blown, your work hours are finished, it's time to go home. And so just pull back in. That impulse to go out and look at objects, appearances, and so forth, even in the present moment. Sounds arising, tactile sensations, thoughts coming up. Oh, interesting. Release it all. Release it by releasing effort, not by grabbing it in. Just letting your awareness gravitate with no object, with no effort to exert or exert it to meditate on anything. No object. We're just resting there. Then just see for yourself what's left. What's left? Now that I'm not deliberately focusing on anything, now what do I know? Probably only one thing, what you knew all along, but so easily gets obscured, muddled, Awareness. That's what's left. That's the one man, the one woman standing, but it's beyond gender, so it has no gender. It's the only thing standing. Now that you're not attending any object, you don't go comatose, you don't go blank, you don't go unconscious. No, you're resting right in consciousness. But now what do you know? You know what's left. And now you have settled your mind in its natural state. You've rebooted from body, speech, and mind that were dysfunctional, filled with viruses, malfunctioning one way after another. And we know, I'm going to give that analogy again. When your computer just isn't working right, something's wrong with it, then reboot, restart. So the whole system just shuts down. The body, speech, and the mind of the computer just shuts down. It reboots. And for a moment, it's just completely still. And then restart. And now, hopefully, when you restart, you're coming out without all of those bugs, dysfunctionality, and so forth. You're coming out of a place that's relaxed, still, and clear. And whatever it is, whether it's sending your kids off to school, or making breakfast, brushing your teeth, working, whatever it may be, that's bound to be a better way to start than what we're habituated with. So let's practice. And for this one, anybody anybody would like to go supine, now's a really good time. As soon as you hear the bell, you may feel your shoulders drop, the eyes soften, as your awareness descends into the field of the body right down to the ground. Settling in this non-conceptual, non-verbal domain of experience. And let your own awareness be as quiet, as non-conceptual as that domain itself. Set your entire body at ease, let it be still, and adopt a posture of vigilance. Give the body your full attention, no time for rumination. Now to settle your speech in its natural state, by settling your respiration in its natural rhythm. Recall that the key is the out total release, surrender, letting go, of tension in the body, of the breath itself, and of all rumination, every last speck. Let your mind be silent. And don't hurry the in-breath. Release all of your out-breath without pushing it out, without holding anything in. And then with the same ease as if you were breathing out, let the breath flow in. without pulling it in or resisting it. Then very specifically release all thoughts pertaining to the future and the past, all interest Releasing your awareness into the present moment. Let it simply be present, but without focusing on anything. Just being aware, without distraction or grasping, and see what's left. Whatever thoughts arise, release them instantly. Maintain a flow of non-conceptual awareness, resting in its own place. now from this place of stillness and clarity let your awareness illuminate the sensations of the in and out breath wherever they manifest throughout the body and when there is a long in breath simply note that it is long a long out breath note that it is long And as your whole system, your body-mind system, calms down, moves towards equilibrium, when there is a short breath, note that there is a short breath, and when there's a short out breath, note that there's a short out breath, and let's continue practicing in silence. Lasso. insofar as our body, speech, and mind, especially mind, is not settled in its natural state, the respiration not settled, the body not settled, body, speech, and mind more tense, contracted, stressed out, the mind especially, agitated, distracted, full of the clutter, the junkyard of rumination which exhausts us and then dumps us off into the the bin of dullness and fatigue. Insofar as the body, speech, and mind, emphasis on mind, are dysfunctional. It's quite natural, perhaps it's even inevitable, that we look elsewhere for a sense of peace and serenity, of stability and calm. So really pleasant, soothing music. Pleasant, soothing people. A nice easy chair, good massage, the very gentle beauties of nature. Since it's so not that way indoors, then we look for something outdoors. Oh, I go there and I feel very peaceful. As if that place already had some kind of peacefulness imbued within it. Of course, it doesn't, it's just a place. quite exhausting having all that rumination so when we look inwards and there's just no pleasure there's no sukkah there's no sense of well-being no pleasure no joy then where will we look? of course we'll look at the other place everywhere else and we'll find things that give us pleasure tasty food beautiful things to look at to touch to smell to listen to oh I'm so happy that's such a happy place that's such a happy place that's such a pleasant program. That's a great, that was a really enjoyable movie. Oh, that's really nice music. This is, etc. As if that joy was really out there. And likewise, when the mind is veiled with dullness, kind of spaced out, nebulous and so forth, then again we look out for something that will arouse, to sharpen, to clarify, to vitalize. Exciting movie, action movie something to wake us up, So the more there's unrest, dullness, tightness within, then naturally we turn outwards. And we find the reflections of these qualities that actually all originate from inside. Because there aren't any peaceful places. Another word for peaceful places is boring place. It's the same boring places, peaceful places, same place. Right. And show me the object that intrinsically and necessarily brings pleasure. I haven't thought of one yet. And so what imbues anything out there with a sense of serenity, peace, calming, soothing, all of that? Of course, there's nothing other than those qualities within your awareness. They don't have it objectively. And anything out there that we experience as pleasure, as pleasant, lovely, beautiful, attractive, pleasing, blissful, where are those qualities coming from? They're not coming from molecules. There are no pleasure molecules. They're not coming from sound waves. They're not coming from photons. They're not coming from molecules suspended in the air or molecules in your food coming from one, only one place, your own awareness. And when we find something out there that we find really interesting, fascinating, provocative, scintillating, exciting, thrilling, where's that coming from? Not coming from outside. That's coming from the clarity of your own awareness. If you don't have that, nothing is interesting. But it's not just the serene, the still, the soothing, the clear qualities that are only coming from the mind. But the appearances themselves, when you go out for a walk in the nature here and you see just the luscious tropical growth here, the wide variety of of the animals there, the insects, and so forth and so on. Where are all those appearances coming from that are so beautiful, and they are? Or the cloud formations or the sunsets, one beautiful sunset after another here. Where Where are all the appearances coming from? And the fragrances, the very fragrance-rich and generally quite interesting and, to my mind, quite pleasing fragrances of the nature surrounding and the sounds of the birds and so forth and so on. And where are all those appearances coming from? They're illuminated by one thing only. There are no colors out there there are no sounds out there. There are no smells out there. There are no tastes out there. All of those are illuminated by only one source, and that's your own awareness. There's no awareness, there's no green, there's no blue, there's no appearances at all. All these are illuminated by only one source, the center of the mandala, your your own awareness. So as you really let your body, speech, and mind, emphasis on mind, come to rest in its own natural sense of ease, of looseness, of clarity, of just softness, of release, then you don't need to go anywhere else for it you come to the source of that which makes other places and so forth seem soothing. But this is what makes them feel soothing, your own awareness, right? And you come in and experience that sukha, that just quiet sense of well-being, let alone bliss, sense of just well-being. And you experience that, you're getting it right from the source, like standing right above an artesian well and drinking right from it, right from the ground, right into your mouth then you don't go out to the streams. Because why would you do that? You're right at the source itself. So there's no incentive, there's no interest to go foraging, hunting and gathering when you're right there at the source already. And likewise, for something that's interesting, entertaining, provocative, arousing, why would you go out when you're resting right in the very nature of that which makes anything else interesting, provocative and so forth and so on? The natural luminosity of your own awareness you come to the source. So why would you go out? And the deeper you go into that source, then it becomes clear and clear. there's only really one reason to come out, apart from just getting a bite to eat and going to the bathroom. That's kind of like nature calls. But apart from that, you know, that's it, eat and release, in and out. Besides that, there's really only one reason to come out. And that's to be of service, to help others find happiness, to alleviate the suffering of others. But besides that, there's just no reason at all. You just stay home. And then just go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. So That's settling body, speech, and mind in the natural state. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. What is the difference between thought and image? How are they interrelated? The words, the words are used in different ways, of course. So just very briefly, when I, say, when I say the word thought, I'm referring to discursive thoughts, the chit-chat of the mind. When I refer to image, I'm referring to the mental imagery that comes to mind. They're interrelated oh, in obvious ways. obvious ways. The images have labels. The talk evokes images. The audio-visual on the television. Pretty much like that. Quite a few here accumulate if I can respond to them briefly. How about this hypothesis? We human beings are all parts of a cosmic being, a macrocosmic. I thought it was like, now we're back to McDonald's cosmos. macrocosmic, <laughs> And we have you know everything else. Okay, but no, this is macrocosmic. We're all part of a macrocosmic being connected at core level. Sure, put the, put, the, put the test to the theory, or the theory to the test of experience. Sure, why not? But it's just an, it's just an idea, just entertainment. So put it to the test. But that would mean releasing all identification with, the, with that which is not you or yours, so you can see who, see who you really are. What appears to us as violence is with what appears to us as goodness, part, integral of such macrocosmic organism. Sure, but pain still hurts, and kindness still feels very nice. So meanwhile, back here, there's a real difference between good and evil, and joy and sorrow. We have to take that seriously. Other people do. And so to kind of steamroller that may be a bit premature. This is why Dzogchen is often held secret because in Dzogchen literature, some of you have, I know have read Dzogchen literature, then they speak so commonly of the one taste of samsara nirvana, the equal purity of samsara nirvana. No distinctions, no acceptance of virtue, no rejection of evil and all of that. All very well if you've realized Rigpa. But if you've not, it's spiritual suicide. Really it is. It's a d- divorcement of common sense. It really, is, it's really, It's just utterly self-destructive. So one must be very careful with that. It's so easy, especially in our modern era of moral relativism where morality is whatever you want it to be. You know, it's all specific to time and culture, and this is my morality, this is your morality, and after all, nothing's really immoral. And nothing's really moral. It's all relative. It's a matter of opinion. And that kind of, oh, nonsense then that kind of nonsense can be conflated with some of the most profound insights from the perspective of rikpa, But to conflate foolishness with rikpa is quite a tragic error. Might not the fellow in Norway mentioned earlier be like a sponge absorbing violence from many other sentient beings who lead good lives and dissolve it like a boil which has been lanced? It's all possibility. There's so infinite number of ways of of speculating. Um, But an easier one is the man is suffering from delusion of thinking that, you know, only one race is the right race. So, absorption, line. you just keep it? Occam's razor. Occam's razor. Do away with unnecessary speculations. Just cut back to okay, what's bare? What's minimum? What's most likely? And most likely in the case of this individual that he's fixated on the notion that people like him are the pure race and everybody else is impure and therefore they should be kept out of the pure race. We've heard this story before and the suffering that comes out of that simple little idea of we the Aryan race, we the English, we the Germans, we the French, we the Chinese, we the anybody, the one how somehow we are the pure ones. It would be impossible to calculate how much human misery has been come, come out of that simple idea. Inco- impossible, because it's been around for so long, and it justifies anything. The Europeans against the the thousands, tens of thousands, who knows how many Africans that were taken out of Africa Africa, put put into bondage Oh, it just makes you want to weep forever. See how they could justify that. And these were all good Christians. you know. They were all Christians, pretty much all Christians. And putting all these children, these men and women, into boats, half of them, two-thirds of them would die in transit, and then just saying, now you are saved forever, and all of your children forever will be slaves. And they would justify that. There's a time when we really have to recognize their evil is evil, and not sugarcoat it with any mystical mumbo-jumbo. Your next eight-week retreat here in Phuket is on Vipassana. You have mentioned that, too. Seriously attempt such practices. The mind must be serviceable. Otherwise, laxity and excitation will seriously interfere. It appears, though, that few of the participants at best in this Vipassana retreat will have accomplished shamatha. That's possible. Lacking course examination, subtle analysis, and the other fruits of having achieved shamatha. What can they hope to achieve? What could one of us hope to achieve were we to begin practicing Vipassana now or in the near future? Good. Very good. Well, on the one hand, I think it really is undeniable that there is a sequence. Shamat is the foundation for Vipassana. Vipassana is not the foundation for Samatha. Ethics is the foundation for both. Vipassana is not the foundation for ethics. So there's a certain sequence there, like a pyramid. It's ethics, samadhi, and wisdom. So there we are. And having said that, and this runs through everything else, the six paramitas, generosity is first, but then comes ethics out of the spirit of generosity, and then comes, and then way towards the end, there's shamatha, there's vipassana, there's meditation, there's wisdom. So it runs through all of Buddhism, right? There it is. Having said that, though, once again there has to be a middle way. And that is if you're practicing and closely applying whatever qualities of mindfulness you have cultivated thus far, and bearing in mind none of us are devoid of mindfulness, it's not like something that we have to achieve out of nothing, having not had it at all. We already were born with mindfulness. We're born with some introspective skill. And it then is a matter of honing it, but not trying to find it all afresh because we didn't have it at all. And so you can easily imagine, though. <coughs> and that is, if you closely apply mindfulness to your body in this very immediate, thoroughly experiential way, and observing the the sensations of the four elements arising, observing the, the factors of origination, how the body is present. All of your experience of the body, is it permanent or impermanent? Is, are these sensations, these appearances of the body, are they by nature pleasurable? How does dukkha, sukha, joy, happiness, and suffering, how do they arrive here? Is there anything here in the nature of the body that by its own nature is I or mine attending closely, shifting that same bright light of mindfulness to feelings, to mental states, to other phenomena, one can easily imagine, really it's quite obvious, that if doing this, will this hone your abilities of mindfulness? Of course it will. It's so interesting. It's much easier to develop your mindfulness skills on something that is interesting rather than something that's not so interesting. right? And so there's a reciprocal relationship here. And this is why one wants to strike the balance. And that is a shamatha, the basis for vipassana, yes. Just as, shama, as as ethics is the basis for shamata. but now as we develop greater sense of ease, of stillness, of clarity, developing our introspective skills, could that help us to be more nuanced, more subtle, more attentive when it comes to monitoring our own body, speech, and mind in terms of the way we're behaving, the intentions that are arising, the words that come out of the mouth, the physical behaviors we engage in, if we've developed mindfulness and introspection through shamatha, could this help us develop a more sensitive awareness of the nature of our own own actions and the impact of our actions on other people? I think so, yeah? In which case, shamatha is serving ethics, as ethics provides the foundation for shamatha, or samadhi. And likewise, of course, samadhi serves the cultivation of wisdom, of insight, but, but through this very process of closely applying mindfulness, monitoring that with introspection, of course this is developing your, your mindfulness and introspection, which will feed right back into shamatha. So <coughs> it's very important not to be rigidly hierarchical, rigidly sequential. And this is what I've been taught by my own lamas for decades, basically from the beginning. Is from the very beginning I was taught that there's a path here. The first thing I was ever taught when I arrived in Dharamsala, the first thing was Lam Rim, the stages of the path, developing authentic motivations and right through the path on the one hand. But I remember so clearly, I'm I'm sorry to run on, I'm not going to run on much. We have a lot of questions stacked up. But I remember when I was kind of getting it and really savoring the natural evolution, the organic development of this path of spiritual awakening that was being taught to to me by this marvelous Geshe, who so embodied what he was teaching. And then when I learned about the higher practices, Vajrayana, Vajrayana practices. I remember very distinctly after maybe eight months, a year, a year and a half, training quite intensively with this lama, six days a week, every day, and then going back and meditating and learning the language and so forth. I remember after I kind of gotten the picture of this is the lam rim, and the way up yonder that's Vajrayana. My goodness, that's really profound. And I went to the lama Geshe Ngawang Taige, and I said, "Oh, I really, I really appreciate." this teaching of the path, and I see this Vajrayana is really beyond me. Boy, that's, that's really high. And he turned to me and said, ah, oh, very good, very good you recognize that. I think it's about time you received Vajrayana empowerment. <laughs> I thought, did you hear what I just said? <laughs> and Of course he did. So he said, good, now that you've got the sequence, now don't get too rigid about it. Go ahead and start sowing seeds for the most advanced practices. Sow seeds now. Because there's a time when you want to harvest those, and if you've been sowing them now, 10, 20, 30 years, however long it is, then you will have sown those. You'll be weaving these in while focusing primarily on the practices that are for you now, from which you derive real benefit. Keep on sowing those seeds. So you'll grow into those shoes, and when you get there, then you'll be all ready. And it won't be, oh, what's this, Vajrayana? Okay, tell me about it. Not I've been practicing for 20, 30 years. Right? So he was immediately, as so, soon as he saw that I savored the path, he said, yeah, now go to the end. Years later, I was in Switzerland, and one great lama, formidable lama, he was teaching, he was invited to teach by, by our lama there, Geshe Raphtan. He taught us for about a week. I served as his interpreter. The six yogas of Naropa, in the Kagyu tradition, it just doesn't get any higher than that. Those, that, those are the most esoteric teachings. There's nothing beyond it. That with Mahamudra, that's it. And it, there's, there's nothing higher. That's the top of the mountain, and that will take you all the way to perfect enlightenment. And so I was translating for these exquisite teachings, really profound, I mean, kind of like mind-bogglingly profound. And when the Lama went on his way, then I went to Yesshararaptan, and I said, "Wow, those are really some teachings. Shall we practice them now?" He said, "Oh, no, why, you're not ready for those." <laughs> That's stage of completion. They're all stage of completion practices. But I wanted you to hear the teachings. Sow the seeds. And now get back to work where you are. Okay? Gyatronabha uh, told me the same thing. I keep on hearing it again and again. I find it to be really good advice. Can you elaborate on the degrees of grasping with, with settling the mind? You mentioned it was the most nuanced of the practices. Sure, a little bit. The degrees of grasping. And that is insofar as you move at all Once you have that and it, you can taste it. I think a number of you have tasted it already. What's it like, whether you're practicing awareness of awareness, it can actually happen in mindfulness of breathing too, but especially awareness of awareness. What's it like, like for the next five seconds, to, as soon as I speak, stop speaking, just let your awareness rest in its own ground, in its own place, holding its own ground, and see what it tastes like, starting now. Okay. When your awareness is resting in its own place and you know it, then you have confidence that that was it. It's nothing more complicated than that. Nothing more esoteric. Nothing to be achieved. I mean, you can do it in five seconds. And there you are, resting in stillness. And you're not moving. If you can remain just as still when you are attending to this three-dimensional cinema of your mind, with all the thoughts, the images, memories, fantasies, desires, emotions arising and rising, insofar as you can remain just as still as if you were just resting the awareness of awareness, then that's good enough. That's resting without grasping. Insofar as you're having any reactivity to what's arising, I wish the mind would be quieter. It's kind of overwhelming. I wish the mind might be more active. It's a bit boring. I wish that wouldn't happen. I hope that lingers. I wish that would stop. Uh 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 Any recoil, any advance, any judgments, any preferences, then that's grasping. Let alone being thrown in the trunk and driven away in some rumination bill. You know. Then <laughs> that's not that's not just grasping, that's kind of full abduction. Okay? Oh, to gauge how we are going with awareness of awareness. Oh, I would just say, for starters, don't go anywhere with awareness. That's the kind of a whole idea. I'm just playing with words here. But don't go anywhere with awareness. Of awareness. There's no place to go. This is shamata happening to you. It's not going from here to there and finding shamata over there. Don't go anywhere with awareness. Of awareness. That's the whole idea. Stay right where you are and be quiet. So, what are some calibration marks to look out for? For example, is it like a daydream with less spacing out rumination? Nope. Is it less tense in the body, less blood rushing the hands, arms, face, and when oscillating? You shouldn't even bother to notice because that's not where your awareness is. If you're attending to that, you're not practicing awareness of awareness. You're practicing awareness of your body to see whether it's tingling or not. That's not awareness of awareness. Is it noticing less of the ambient noise? If you're noticing it at all, then you're not practicing awareness of awareness. Any particular or obvious things to note? Yep. <laughs> 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 Only one thing. <laughs> it's real simple. Keep it simple. And don't look for calibrations. Not in this practice. Don't look for calibrations. Don't look for benchmarks. There aren't any. Just do the practice and be quiet. (laughs) In a very gentle, loving way. (laughs) So who are these evil creatures chasing me? Where do they come from? So I thought, (laughs) I must relax because they're not real. I slowed down my running and saw that they did the same. Then I stopped walking and the dark creatures disappeared. Finally I wake up and later I could remember a scene that was very similar in a cartoon. Good. Yep. I've seen cartoons like that too. Good. Bear in mind if you ever, ever want a, uh, a dream to vanish, just stop. Just rest your awareness, let your awareness hold its own ground. Don't deliberately give any attention to any appearances in the dream. Just stop. Be quiet. Rest in your own place. Within a matter of seconds, a dream will disappear. So would you please demonstrate the following mindfulness of breathing techniques involved involving counting the breath mentioned in, attention revolution. Okay, a little bit of elaboration, sure. We're coming on the back side of the retreat now. Counting one through ten with one count for each, res- for each full respiration. Yep, so that's easy. We're, we've been doing that already. And so one count at the end of inhalation and then two at the next. There we are. The meditator taking either inhalation or exhalation as a starting point as he thinks fit should begin counting one and repeat it until the next breath comes as one, 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 two, two, and thus up to ten, noting the breath as they rise in succession as he counts thus the incoming breath and the outcoming breath becoming clear and distinct to his mind. Oh, yeah. So this First of all, the thing is just pragmatism. Just see what works. If it's too much, it's gonna clutter and annoy you. If it's too little, then you may find yourself being unnecessarily caught up in rumination. So striking that balance. But imagine if if you can, try. Imagine that your mind is just overwhelmed with rumination. <laughs> I thought that would be the response. Okay. And it's just hard. It's just you just keep on just being knocked off the center. Just you come back, and as soon as you're there, boing, and you're off again, and you come back, and boing, and it's just like, oh, I never get a break here. I don't even get three seconds. I get like one and a half, and boing, another rumination comes in, and I'm breathing in, yeah, whatever, blah 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 blah, you know. And so, if you're just being inundated, like like a gang beating you up, you know, just from all sides, then Develop your own bodyguard, like Bruce Lee, surrounded by other, you know, martial art buddies, right? And they come in. So Bruce Lee's in the center, but he's got his buddy around him, his bodyguards, right? And so, when all the gangs of kung fu are coming in, you know, to try to knock Bruce Lee off his block, then he's got these guys around him to protect him, right? And so he can just take out the big mean dude. That's how. And so, this is what this is about. As you're breathing in, and you know they're coming in, they're coming in, they're coming, they're coming for you. They know where you live. <laughs> then, as you're breathing in, one, one, one. In other words, before you can get in, I'm already saying one. <coughs> <laughs> and I'm breathing out, you want to go one, one, one. One, one, one. one, one, one Outdo them with monotony. (laughs) One, 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 one. You didn't get one kick in. Two, two, two. You know, just crowd them out. Crowd them out. And they're kind of looking, when is the guy going to stop counting? (laughs) (laughs) I can't get a word in edgewise. It's like one of those people that in the conversation they don't take a breath and you're waiting for them to take a breath but somehow, like Pavarotti or some flautist, they never take a breath. Really good flautists. I think they, they can actually keep on blowing while they're inhaling. That's a skill to be cultivated. <laughs> so just don't give them an in you know, at all. That's what this counting is about. And then when you see they're backing off a little bit, then it's one, one when you see them even like one <laughs> one one as soon as they want to start talking just say one and two and right on that just don't give them an inch just interrupt them every time before they get to start talking and silence them with the most dulling the most dull rebuttal three <laughs> it's a real conversation stopper, <laughs> and that's the idea. When the inhalation is count one, when the inhalation has come in, count one with mindfulness applied to inhalation and exhalation. When the, ex- when the inhalation has ceased, so that's when it's come in. When, the in. when it's come in, when it has come in, and when the inhalation has ceased and the exhalation has gone out, so count two. So here it's just speeding up the counting process. So it's. One, and two, and three, and four. So one count at the end of each, one count at the end of inhalation. Then the next count two at the end of exhalation. Next count three at the end end of inhalation. So you just speed it up a little bit. Okay? Or oh, counting from one to ten with each full respiration. That's easy. That's what we've been doing. Or with each full cycle, you can count. One, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three. Yeah, one, one -- oh, yeah, that, that's a complicated one. For people who really like to make this complicated with each full breath and what do you do? I think you go up to 10. Yeah, you do. OK? So with each full, full cycle, one, two, three, four, five. But now, one, two, three, four, five, six. one, two, three, four, five, seven. Try to get some conversation into that one. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, you know. It really, so like, where was I again? You know, there's just no time for rumination here. And, you know, it's so boring that it will be a tremendous relief when you can stop. <laughs> and that will be really nice. Like, oh, good, now I fine. You know, just kind of bully your mind to death that the rumination says, I can't stand it anymore. I give. I will be quiet. Just stop the counting. Please stop the counting. <laughs> <laughs> so that's thanks to a sangha. I think he has a sense of humor, too. And at the, at the end of all of this, this is from this text that I translated. It's never been published. At the end of all of this, um, he says, and now there are people of sharp faculties who will be, just, I'm paraphrasing closely here, there will be people of sharp faculties and they will find counting the breaths altogether simply annoying. And therefore, they don't need to do it. Right. But if you merely find it annoying, but then you tolerate all the cockroaches in your food, then you don't get the benefit of either way. Right? You're not silencing them with, with counting, but then nor are you really fine-tuning, which is this zero-tolerance zero, zero tolerance policy That you're so engaged, you're so engaged with the topic at hand that you don't let them in. And so a brief comment on this, and we will have time. I was pretty efficient there. Um, William James, William James, he wrote so with such, I think, such insight. He was naturally gifted introspectively, quite astonishingly so. But when he raised the issue of attention, about which he wrote quite eloquently and with insight, he said. For example, children in a classroom, and we all know this, people in a meditation hall, it's much easier to be attentive, to sustain your flow of attention if the teacher, the professor, whoever it is, is saying something interesting, and if it's delivered in an interesting fashion. Of course, we all know that, right? But, and so in that way, your interest is aroused, the stability and clarity, that is, we're really paying attention, not just hanging in there, but you know, maintaining continuity, but with a lot of clarity, with real interest. And why? Well, it could be an entertainer, and that's good enough. It could be somebody telling a fascinating story, and that's good enough. Or there are very charismatic teachers, and they could read the phone book. Or teachers are really sublime, like His Holiness Dalai Lama, whether or not what he says is really interesting or not. Uh, And sometimes it is, not always, but many people find just being in his presence, being able to gaze at him, listen to his voice, that also is not so much interesting, but it's engaging, one wants to attend closely. Uh, in, in so many ways, one may. It, why are so many of the newscasters very attractive? Right? Just ordinary daily news. How many, why are so many of them attractive? They really tend to be a bit better than normal. Why? <laughs> what are you going to say? <laughs> I'm already interested. <laughs> And so it's coming from the object side. Whether it's sheer beauty and so forth and so on. But now, pardon me for spending so much time saying the obvious, but now he said there's another mode of interest which engages another level of attention. And that is cases, and there are many, it's not just in meditation by any means, and I don't think he ever meditated, as far as I know, is where that which we're directly attending to is not particularly attractive, interesting, engaging, scintillating, and so forth, like sensations of the breath. But we're fascinated or we're very drawn to or very committed to, interested in the activity itself. We see the benefit, and we really want that benefit. So I know for myself, when I was studying advanced mechanics, Newtonian mechanics, but at a high level when I was at Amherst studying physics, I'd have to say overall my interest in advanced mechanics was zero. Really, there was never a problem that we were given. We were given three problems a week to solve on. The professor expected us to spend about three hours on each problem. There was never a problem I found interesting. It's not because they weren't interesting, it's just not what I was interested in. But I felt, but I'm really interested in quantum mechanics. And I'll not be able to really understand quantum mechanics unless I've really understood Newtonian mechanics. And this is what you need to do. You need to understand Newtonian mechanics. And likewise for advanced calculus and all of that. I'm not gifted there, and I'm terribly interested, a bit more than mechanics. But I wanted to do quantum mechanics, and not just kind of a new, do a new-agey hand-waving kind of thing. So, okay, advanced calculus it is, advanced mechanics it is. But I was really interested in quantum mechanics and trying to understand it and see to what extent does it really relate to Madhyamaka philosophy and what are its foundations and what are the philosophical implications, and so forth, what's the role of the measurement, what's the role of the observer, these things really engage me. And so because I was interested in learning quantum mechanics and exploring its foundations, therefore by that power I aroused enough interest to study calculus and advanced mechanics that I got through the courses, learned the material, and then was able to get on what I wanted. So whether or not you find the sensations of the breath interesting, stimulating, and so forth, You may, if you've learned enough about shamatha, and not only the end point of achieving shamatha, but just along the path, the benefits of achieving shamatha, which you start from the very first session, of recognizing, clearly understanding, the value of relaxation, of stillness, of clarity, of mental balance, the implications for other aspects of mental health and well-being, the implications for ethics, for meaningful life, for productivity, optimal performance, and all of that, you may feel, wow, this is really important. And if if to do this, if what I need to do is focus on the breath, okay, let me at it. Where's the breath? Where's the breath? I'm ready. Oh, okay, let's go. (laughs) Because I really want to develop shamatha. I want to develop attentional balance. It's really important. So it can start out that way. Not because you find mindfulness of breathing so fascinating, but you really find, you know, you're drawn to the benefits of it. And then comes an unexpected perk. Benefit. A number of you have already experienced it. And that as you're just going about this task of turning off your interest for a little while in all hedonic stimulation, including rumination, and you're focusing just on the sensations of the breath, full body, abdomen, nostrils, wherever, and you're just doing the hard work, and you're just plugging away there, being persistent, diligent, disciplined, and doing it properly, so you really are feeling. Deeper and deeper sense of ease and relaxation. And a release of grasping. Letting go of the rumination. Like, bye. And coming back. And the mind just starts to settle in. More relaxed. More still. And in that quiet room of your mind... Clarity, just like the sun coming over the horizon, the clarity of your awareness starts to manifest. mind becomes clearer, more subtle. And you're aware of the subtler sensations of the breath. And now you see in this whole process that the the flow of the respiration itself is all calming down. This short breath, short in-breath, out-breath. You bring more clarity to it. You come to a tipping point well, you don't really want to stop. It's more pleasant doing this than not doing this. And so you go off to eat your meal, and you just <laughs> I want to get it over with. Because <laughs> you know your body needs fuel. But it's so complicated. All that food and the flavors and the fragrances and the chewing, chewing, chewing. And you'd really rather be someplace else. Now, if you're really balanced, not like me, then you'll be doing this with equal mindfulness as you are attending to the breath, and it'll be all even. But for myself, I'm not quite there yet. I'd just rather be on my cushion. I like simplicity. And eating is so complicated. But I think some of you are more advanced than I am in that way. Bring full mindfulness to breathing. I kid, I'm not joking. Really bring that full mindfulness to eating. It's much better. I'm just kind of an impatient sort. I like simplicity. But there it is in that, having turned off the valve of hedonic stimulation and bringing clarity to whatever is arising, including eating food. Then sukha rises from your mind, and you know exactly where it came from. If you're eating food, you can feel the sukha, the, pleasant, the, the pleasantness, is coming from the food. Thank you for such a nice meal. Oh, I really enjoyed that dish. Please have that again, because you gave me sukha. Right? But if you're following breath, You don't wonder who dished up sukha. Right. It's quite clear. Since it didn't come from any place else, then you have only one culprit. Your own awareness. And it comes specifically from the clarity of awareness. Oh, yeah. So, managed to respond to all, and I got to ramble, (laughs) which I did. We have eight minutes. Practice questions pertaining to Today, that really narrows it down a lot. Because this practice here, really crucial. Master this one, you've got a foundation for everything else. Don't master this one, you don't have a foundation for anything else. I kid you not. We'll start with Regina. Uh, yeah. It's coming. Um, why is it so important to have the eyes uh, open? Are they the physical portal to the substrate? the liaison between the formless realm and our physical body? Mm -hmm. Well, for starters, for mindfulness of breathing, uh, different traditions say different things. If you want to have your eyes closed, let them be closed. Yeah, no big deal. Settling body, speech, and mind, whatever feels comfortable. Because if there were one right way to do it, all the great masters, I think, would be pointing to that. And they don't. When it comes to settling the mind, two points pragmatic and deep, kind of a bit deeper pragmatic having the eyes at least a bit a little bit open